I'll read you the assignment I was given. I think it's a very good one. In a world full of anger, how can Christians demonstrate God's character and resist the temptation to sin? What is worth getting angry about and what is not? Encourage us to avoid situations, topics, or technology that we know have a good chance of making us angry. When and how is it okay to be angry? We often hear of righteous anger. Is this something we can learn about in Scripture? Contrast what we read in the Bible about anger with our culture's embrace of anger in media, politics, entertainment, and social media. What can we learn about anger from the book of Proverbs? Help us understand why God gives the emotion of anger. Can it be a motivator or an aid to problem solving? Are there times it is best to be angry? Or is it generally best to avoid anger? Share examples of God's anger and his behavior when angry. Address the story of Jesus clearing the money changers. Was Jesus angry in this situation? What makes God angry? Should we also be angry about the things that anger God? Teach us about God's quality of being slow to anger and encourage us to match this quality in our lives. I think this is a very good assignment. It seems to lend itself to discussion and probably it's better done as a discussion. So I want to allow plenty of time for your questions and comments. We can take those at any time. Give us a signal and we'll bring a microphone to you straight away. This part about the technology uh, and the social media makes me feel uh, a bit inadequate here because I don't know nearly as much about all of that as I think most of you do. And I know this is a real issue in the area of anger. One of my few experiences with this was uh, when we first got the internet. This was back in the 90s sometime. My son-in-law happened to be over at the house, and uh, we had been getting those AOL discs with free time in the mail, and people had been wanting me to get online, so I thought probably it was about time for me to do that. So John showed me how to get online, and get a screen name and all of that. And later that evening, I was messing around with the internet and I stumbled into a, uh, a uh, chat room. It was a chat room for atheists. And uh, I started typing into that chat room and just was amazed at the aspersions and innuendo at the unfairness and the injustice that were coming my way all of a sudden. So I started typing faster and faster and just really, you know, <laughs> typing. I looked up, it was four o'clock in the morning. And when I shut that down and put it aside, I tried to evaluate, was that beneficial or not? And I don't know that I can say that it was. There was a lot of information exchanged. There was a lot of thought given back and forth. But looking at the bottom line, I'm not sure it was that profitable. I haven't done it that often since. Just because of, the, I guess, the rudeness, the temper, the attitude 
that was manifested in that chat room. So at any point when any of you want to say anything about social media and that, that's about the the main experience that I've had with it, but I know that many of you have experiences with this on an ongoing basis, and I'd be interested in your take on this as relates to anger. I wasn't angry, but it was pretty intense for a few hours there. Um, From the beginning of the Bible, we encountered questions. Can somebody tell us what was the first question in the Bible? Just yell it out. You don't need a mic for that. Yeah, hath God said? That was the first question. Did God really say this, or did he mean something else, or did you interpret it incorrectly? That was the first one in Genesis 3, and then the second question prompted a series of questions. What was the second question? Yeah, that's part of the series. Where are you? Who told you you were naked? And then a little bit after that. The third question, or the third actually different question that's not in a series, is in the next chapter, chapter 4. And what is that question? Am I my brother's keeper? It comes in this series, yes. Something that God asked Cain. Yes, why are you angry? And we're only in the fourth chapter of Genesis. Why are you angry? We can see how anger manifests itself because three verses later there's a murder. So it's a very important topic to deal with. And starting with Cain, anger appears in Scripture with tremendous frequency. Words like anger, fury, wrath, indignation, and rage appear in at least 550 verses in the Bible. And that doesn't even count the times when anger is described, but not explicitly stated. Not only is God called angry in verses like Psalm 7, verse 11, God is angry with the wicked every day, but more than 50 men and groups in the Bible are said to be angry. I just want to outline these for you so that we get the flow from the beginning of the Bible to the end very quickly. People that are said to be angry. Cain, Esau, Jacob, Simeon, Levi, Potiphar, Pharaoh, Moses, Balaam, Balak, the men of Ephraim, Samson, Saul, Eliab, Jonathan, the princes of the Philistines, Abner, David, the men of Israel, Naaman, Asa, Sanballat, Tobiah, the Arabs, the Ammonites, the Ashdodites, Nehemiah, Ahasuerus, Haman, Elihu, the Shunammites' brothers, Rezan, king of Syria, Moab, Sennacherib, Nebuchadnezzar, the Greek nation, Jonah, Herod the Great, those in the synagogue at Nazareth, Jesus, the people of Jerusalem, the Sanhedrin, Herod Agrippa, the Ephesian mob, Paul, And finally, Satan, in the book of Revelation, angry that he has but a short time. This highlights the frequency with which the Bible talks about anger and the role that anger has played in the history of humanity. From reading that list, it's notable that 
Every time the Bible mentions a particular human being being angry, it is a man, a male. As far as I know, the Bible never says a particular woman was angry. Can you think of a particular woman, a woman who is named in the Bible as being angry? Who? I didn't get it, I'm sorry. Jezebel, is it said that she was angry? Where is that? I missed it if it said that she was angry, but I'm open to new information here. Does the Bible say that Jezebel was angry? I think she was, but doesn't say she was. You thought you're talking about like First Kings 19, the first few verses there. Does it say she was angry? Okay, good. I don't have anything to check with except the Bible here. I'll look over there. It does not? Okay. It says that? What page are you on? 1 Kings 18, 19. (laughs) Does it tell what translation that is? 1 Kings 18, 19. I'll read what I have for that. Now therefore send and gathered me to gather to me all Israel unto Mount Carmel, and the prophets of Baal 450, and the prophets of the groves 400, which eat at Jezebel's table. That's 1 Kings 18, 19. So, it might be a different verse. I, I don't know. If anybody can help us clarify that, I would like to know if the Bible ever says that a specific woman was angry or said something angrily. It's not nailed down in my mind so far. I'm willing to stipulate that there is such a thing as an angry woman, by the way. (laughs) Just in case anybody should happen to ask you. I think Michael was angry when she had the interchange that she had with King David with his dancing and she didn't like that. She sure comes across as angry to me. And also we have uh, in Proverbs 21 verse 19 that it's better to dwell in the wilderness than with a contentious and angry woman. But there's no name attached to that. It's not talking about a specific woman. So that's what I'm looking for, a specific woman in the Bible who is said to be angry. And as far as I can tell, we still haven't found it. If you come up with it at any time, just uh, insert it into the discussion. But however that may be, there is such a thing as an angry woman. But it's also true that each gender has its own propensities. And by and large, it seems to me that anger is more of a male issue. We have specific information for men in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 8. I will, therefore, that men, and this is a word that is gender specific, uh, 
men as opposed to women, pray everywhere, lifting up holy hands without wrath and doubting. So that's given directly to men. There seems to be a propensity here. Men seem to be more inclined to anger than women. But then again, we all need what the Bible has to say on this topic. So once again, I reiterate, this is a good assignment. We live in a world where there's a lot of anger. And it has become increasingly pervasive, it seems. We've got more road rage now than ever in my memory. We've got vitriol on the radio, on TV, in music, from our politicians, and on and on. And it seems that the further our society moves from God, the more the anger escalates. When the culture around us is moving in an ungodly direction, we have to make special efforts not to do the same. And we're going to seem stranger and stranger to the world as we make these efforts. We need to know when it's right to be angry and how it's right to be angry. We need to guard against letting anger get out of control. The word temper means to moderate, to exercise control over, to cause to be well disposed. When you lose your temper, you are in danger. So I thought we might begin here with a look at the 20th chapter of the book of Numbers. This is an incident in the life of Moses. And I want to look at this because it's not common to think of Moses as a man with a temper problem. But after laboring diligently for 40 years, Moses is not going to be allowed to enter the promised land because he did not control his temper, didn't control his anger. So we want to look at some reasons for anger, some restrictions on anger, some results of anger, some remedies for anger, and for problems resulting from anger. First, some reasons for anger, and these can be direct or indirect. Let me read to you, and you may want to follow along in Numbers chapter 20, verse 1. Then came the children of Israel, even the whole congregation, into the desert of Zin in the first month, and the people abode in Kadesh, and Miriam died there and was buried there. Miriam died. Many find it very stressful when there is a death in their close family. This stress can be a trigger for reactions. Miriam was Moses' big sister. When Moses was a defenseless little baby, this is the girl who watched out for him in his little ark at the edge of the river. She wanted to see what would happen to him, and she wanted to help him if she possibly could. So there are intense feelings involved in this. My wife had a crippled brother. From the age of two, he had a rare muscular disease, lots of operations, scrawny little arms, braces on his legs, walking with a big limp, and much smaller than other boys his age. In high school, 
when bullies came along and knocked his books out of his hands and made him fall down in the hall. And then they stood around laughing at him while he was trying to get up and gather his books. My wife, who was an upperclassman in that same school, happened to come down that particular hall on her way to class. She saw her brother trying to pick up his books with these guys standing around laughing and taunting. Now, my wife was pretty high up in the pecking order of the kids in that school. She was well-known. She was popular, involved in lots of activities, a pretty prominent girl. She'd been in front of the school performing in musical productions and plays many times, so most people knew who she was. Probably everybody in the school knew who she was. But it was a big school, and these bullies did not necessarily know that this was her little brother they were picking up. But she came down that hall, she looked around at those bullies, shaming them without saying much, and quietly helped her brother pick up his books and get to his feet and helped him get to class, and the bullies were quieted. That's a big sister looking out for a helpless little brother. Miriam is the girl who helpfully asked Pharaoh's daughter, Would you like for me to go get a Hebrew nurse for you to nurse that baby? Miriam was the instrument whereby little Moses was reunited with his mother. There's an old folk song about that called Little Moses. You may be familiar with that. When Pharaoh's daughter came down to the water to bathe at the close of the day, before it was dark, she opened the ark and saw the sweet infant was near. She thought him so pretty and on him took pity and it made little Moses so glad. I just want to sing the whole song. It's so beautiful. It's a beautiful story. Miriam was the instrument by which the family was reunited again, and so it was that Jochebed got paid for nursing her own baby. That's nice work if you can get it. I don't think Moses remembered the actual event, but these scenes were undoubtedly rehearsed many times in his presence as he grew up through the years. And even though there was conflict with Miriam later in life, and that's an important exacerbation and probably complication of this whole emotional issue for Moses, even though he had that conflict with Moses later in life, Moses never forgot what his big sister did for him. And when she died, it must have impacted him emotionally. I don't know if he knew even how it impacted him. Men in particular have a difficult time knowing that sometimes, or even acknowledging or even understanding their own emotions. But always remember, always remember this. Not knowing what you feel is not the same as not feeling anything. And Moses was feeling something, whether he could give a name to it or not, whether he knew what it was or not. As Moses viewed the corpse of his dead sister, he undoubtedly thought of what he owed her. He undoubtedly thought of how long they'd been related and reviewed in his own mind the interaction of their lives. Emotions unexpressible must have welled up in him. So Moses is dealing with grief. Whether he knows he's dealing with it or not, it's in him in some form, and it's affecting him. So let's go on, verse 2. And there was no water for the congregation, 
And they gathered themselves together against Moses and against Aaron. And the people chode with Moses and spake, saying, Would God that we had died when our brethren died before the Lord. And why have you brought up the congregation of the Lord into the wilderness that we and our cattle should die there? And wherefore have you made us to come up out of Egypt to bring us unto this evil place? It is a place of no seed or of figs or of vines or of pomegranates, neither is there any water to drink. Here we have the complaining of the people. Obviously, this is nothing new. We wish we were dead. You've brought us out here where there's nothing to eat and there's no water. They've been complaining all the way through, as you know. Clear back in the 14th chapter of Numbers, verse 22. God himself said, they've tempted me these ten times. And now we've gone beyond ten. God has been very patient with them. How long shall I have to bear with this evil congregation which murmur against me? But here in chapter 20, it's still going on. The people are whining, they're griping, and that's just the nature of people. It's just the nature of people. I've seen it all my life, and so have you. Douglas Brinkley is a historian. I don't necessarily expect you to know who he is, but a very interesting man. A few years ago, he was teaching a course in American history at Hofstra University on Long Island. And as he was teaching this American history, he kept thinking, I wish these kids could actually see some of the stuff that we're talking about. So he developed a six-week course in the summer in which he took 17 students and hired a bus and a driver, and they went all over our great country, seeing things, talking with interesting people, and reading interesting things. But one of the first things they did when he hired this bus was to put up a sign in the front of the bus that said, No whining. He specifically told these students, I don't want to hear your problems. But of course, in the course of the course, there were plenty of, plenty of problems heard. There's a book about the whole trip that you can get and read and probably enjoy. This is just the nature of people, this whining. So the people are accusing and they're attacking Moses. Is it understandable that Moses got mad? Of course it is. I can understand it, and I can feel sorry for Moses here. Moses didn't want this job in the first place. God insisted, and Moses did it. But he got angry, and I wouldn't say that that was wrong either. Anger in and of itself is not always wrong. It's a God-given emotion. Ephesians 4.26 says, Be angry and sin not. Split those two apart. That shows to me that it's not necessarily sinful to be angry. In fact, sometimes anger can be good. Anger can stir us. Anger can energize us to do good. Henry Ward Beecher said, A man who does not know how to be angry does not know how to be good. That was the way he put it. He further said, a man that does not know how to be shaken to his heart's core with indignation over things evil is either a fungus or a wicked man, end quote. The Bible frequently speaks of God's anger over evil. The New Testament tells us about Jesus becoming angry with those who were hard-hearted, proud, and critical. God's anger was always over sin. 
Jesus' anger was over sin. And never because somebody had slighted him personally. Psalm 97 verse 10 says, You who love the Lord hate evil. When I hear a news story about a girl who was stolen away from the streets of her neighborhood and kept captive in a house by a man for years until she could finally escape and was at a stage of her development where she didn't even look like she did when she was first stolen away. When I hear stories like that, which we hear all too frequently, if that doesn't make you angry, I don't understand you. When people abuse children, it should make us angry. So there is a place for it. Now, what about some restrictions on anger? Let's go a little further in the 20th chapter of the book of Numbers. Verse 6. And Moses and Aaron went from the presence of the assembly unto the door of the tabernacle of the congregation, and they fell on their faces, and the glory of the Lord appeared unto them. And the Lord spake unto Moses, saying, Take the rod, and gather thou the assembly together, thou and Aaron thy brother, and speak ye unto the rock before their eyes. And it shall give forth his water, and thou shalt bring forth to them water out of the rock. So thou shalt give the congregation and their beast drink. And Moses took the rod from before the Lord as he commanded him. Moses had a right to be angry, but how was he supposed to conduct himself? Moses' instruction from God here involved a calm, compassionate, deliberate response. Moses was not supposed to fly off the handle. Moses was not supposed to say hateful things or mean things. Moses did not have a right to cuss him out. Be angry and sin not. Anger is not always wrong, but anger is always dangerous. And that's why we have to watch it. That's why there are so many warnings about anger in the Bible. Because anger can so easily get out of control. I already mentioned that back in Genesis 4, verse 5, we read that Cain was very angry and his countenance fell, and even murder was not far off. And that has not been unknown among us, because anger can very easily lead in that direction. After Nabal shunned David's request for food and supplies, this is in 1 Samuel 25, David was furious, and I think he had a right to be. There was a common practice in those days that a big tip was the reward that was given by the landowners and the farmers to men like David and the men that were with him. When they did things to guard the property of the landowner and so forth, There was at the end of the season, there was a big tip that was to given them. This was well understood in that kind of a community. Everybody knew what the custom was. This customary tip David should have had from Nabal for protecting Nabal's interest. But Nabal wasn't going to give that. And David took his men in a mad rush and headed off to kill Nabal. He was ready to do it. And when Abigail stood in the road and stopped it, and David calmed down a little, David said, Blessed is the Lord who sent you to stop me. I was about to behave like an idiot. 
His anger prompted him to do something that would have been extremely foolish, and that's the nature of anger. It leads us to do things we would not normally normally even consider doing. It leads us to say things we would not normally even consider saying. Somebody said, anger is a wind that blows out the lamp of the mind. And there's truth in that. There are measurable physical reasons why anger affects our ability to be rational. When we are angry, our adrenaline flows faster and our strength increases by about 20%, our physical strength. The liver, pumping sugar into the bloodstream, demands more oxygen from the heart and lungs. Our veins become enlarged. The blood supply to the problem-solving part of the brain is severely decreased because under stress, a greater portion of the body's blood is diverted into the body's extremities. So this is an emotional condition that a person is in, and it means that while he's beautifully equipped for a fight, he's very poorly equipped to solve most of the problems that we face in our 21st century American lives. Be angry and sin not. Let not the sun go down upon your wrath, neither give place to the devil. Ephesians 4, 26 and 27. Meaning, don't give an opportunity to the devil. Don't give the devil a foothold. If you feed your anger, it will give opportunity to the devil and can very easily lead you into sin. So Proverbs 15, 18 says, A wrathful man stirs up strife, but he who is slow to anger allays contention. We've all got anger at some point, but what do you do with your anger? That's what the question becomes. What do you do with your anger? Imagine you're at work and your boss comes in and belittles you in front of everybody, and it just burns you up. Maybe you feel that it's unfair. But what are you going to do with your anger? You've got choices. You can say something ugly. You can stew on it and feed your anger. Or you can just move on. You can do that. Proverbs 16.32 says, He who is slow to anger is better than the mighty. And he who rules his spirit is is better than he who takes a city. What does it mean to rule your spirit? It means that you have control over yourself, over your words, over your actions. Sometimes people say, well, I just can't control myself. That is not true. You are lying to yourself. You can control yourself, and you need to control yourself. I've never been very good with tools. I remember one time as a boy, I was working on my bicycle, had it upside down on the driveway, trying to fix it so I could ride it. And the wrench I was using slipped, and I barked several of my knuckles. And I remember deciding in that moment of anger, Am I going to throw this wrench or not? 
I decided to go ahead and throw it. It felt pretty good to throw it. But then I had to go get it. Had to find it in the neighbor's grass. And I still had to fix my bike if I was going to be able to ride. So throwing the wrench, although there was a momentary release of emotion, I decided that throwing the wrench really didn't help. It's a mighty man who can take a city, but a man who controls his emotions is a better man than him. What was Moses supposed to do? He was angry, but what was he supposed to do? Moses was supposed to control his emotions and calmly and appropriately do what God said to do. God gave him the right instructions to save Moses from a problem. So what about the results of anger? Let's go a little further in verse 10. And Moses and Aaron gathered the congregation together before the rock, and he said unto them, Hear now, ye rebels, must we fetch water out of this rock? Must we fetch you water out of this rock? And Moses lifted up his hand, and with his rod he smote the rock twice. And the water came out abundantly, and the congregation drank, and their beasts also. God told Moses to speak to the rock, not to the people. I don't think God wanted Moses speaking to the people at this point because he knew Moses was angry. Didn't even tell him to speak to the people. Sometimes it's better not to speak to people if you're angry at them. Get yourself some distance, count to ten or a hundred or take a walk before you speak to people. God told Moses to speak to the rock. God was going to give these people water. But Moses decided that more than doing what God said was needed, and that was the problem. Moses decided that. Moses is going to throw the wrench. God did not tell Moses to strike the rock. Moses did it twice, apparently in anger. Moses says, must we fetch you water out of this rock? And so it is. That Psalm 106, verses 32 and 33 says, They angered him also at the waters of strife, so that it went ill with Moses for their sakes, because they provoked his spirit, so that he spake unadvisedly with his lips. So hard to control your mouth when you're angry. Moses didn't have power to bring water out of that rock. I just think this is anger talking. Must we do this? Proverbs 25, 28 says, Whoever has no rule over his own spirit is like a city broken down without walls. What's a city without walls like? In that day, it was to have no defenses. If you had no walls, you had no defenses. Moses' good senses have gone by the wayside here, and he's let anger take control. And what were the results of Moses' anger. Verse 12. The Lord spake unto Moses and Aaron, Because you believe me not to sanctify me in the eyes of the children of Israel, therefore you shall not bring this congregation into the land which I have given them. Period. Because you didn't believe me. Eighty years of preparation and providence out the window. 
Getting into the promised land is what Moses has been looking forward to the whole time. For 40 years, Moses has been in the wilderness dreaming of the promised land, and now he's not going to get to go. And from Deuteronomy, we learn that several times Moses asked God to take away this stiff sentence of punishment, but God wouldn't do it. In fact, God finally told Moses, just quit asking about that. Just stop talking about it. So what are the results of uncontrolled anger? For Moses, it meant that he missed the promised land, and that was huge in his life. What are the results of uncontrolled anger for us? Well, sometimes the result is damaged relationships. Proverbs 18, verse 9 says, A brother offended is harder to win than a strong city, and contentions are like the bars of a castle. That means they're real hard to get around. Ten seconds of expressed anger can take years. Literally, it can take you years to undo. In under a minute, you can break down friendships. You can destroy trust. You can hurt feelings. And it may bring irreparable damage. Why do hurtful words bring so much damage? Partly because they're really hard to forget. I can remember hurtful, cutting things that were said to me years ago, and I can remember them with the greatest of clarity. Not because I haven't forgiven, but because they were life-altering. Sometimes the result of losing our temper is to harm the church. Imagine you're a member of a local congregation, you're living faithfully, you're consistently trying to tell your friends about the Lord and His plan of salvation, you're trying to help people understand what it means to be a Christian, and then one day in the presence of these people, you lose your temper and you sin. Maybe you cuss somebody, maybe you belittle them, or berate, or bash, or insult somebody. What have you done to the church? Well, you know what happens, immediately people are talking about the hypocrites in the church. He's in the Church of Christ, and I heard him cussing up a storm the other day. Because you didn't control your temper, you shamed the precious body of Christ and brought hurt to the cause for which he died. In addition to these things, if you lose your temper, you might hurt yourself. You can do this physically. I have known of more than one man in the church who literally broke bones in his hand by smashing it into his fist into the wall of his his house. You've got to hit between the studs. You hit where the stud is, something's got to give. This is a nice male tendency, just to expel that energy in a way like this. And in many instances, people have hurt themselves physically. You can break a window and hurt yourself financially because they're not cheap. You might hurt your ability to teach others because their attitude might quickly become, what you are talks so loudly that I can't even hear what you say. 
A lack of love and self-control shows me to be a destructive person. Ecclesiastes 7 verse 8 says, The patient in spirit is better than the proud in spirit. Now, I've had more than one person tell me through the years, well, there's nothing wrong with losing my temper. I just blow up and then it's all over. Well, that happens with a shotgun too. It goes off and then it's all over. But what about the damage done? That's the real question. What about the damage done? One time my dad bought a new shotgun and it had a uh, an adjustable choke out on the end of it. This isn't even a story about anger, just thoughtlessness. He bought this new gun and we were up at the farm and, you know, away from the city, away from the confines of his office where he had to go every day downtown Kansas City. So I guess he was feeling kind of free. Anyway, he wanted to know what the shot pattern with this gun would be if he... Uh, brought the, uh, the choke to the place where he'd have the biggest pattern. Didn't know how to find out, so my grandpa had this barn that was, uh, this uh, garage, really, that was a garage, and uh, on the sides of the garage it had areas for uh, storing feed and other things. Anyway, the side, the outside part of that was all painted white, beautifully done up, but we're on the farm, my dad's feeling free, so he just paced off a certain number of paces and shot the side of my grandpa's barn and went over and investigated the pattern, and it was it was a nice little pattern about from your head to your foot, all stretched out there. It's feeling pretty good until my grandpa saw what he'd done and said, what if I was to take my 410, but my grandpa was never his 410, it was his 410. What if I took my 410 down to the city and shut the side of your garage? <laughs> and my dad was uh, duly meekened and apologized for having done such a thing. I don't think he even knew why he had done that. He was just on the farm feeling free. Anyway, a moment even of thoughtlessness can do untold damage, and when we add anger into that, it only gets worse. Yes, your explosion may be over, or you may think it's over, or you may want to pretend it's over. I know families where they do a lot of pretending. Somebody blows up, and then it's quiet for a while, and then... Somebody ventures out to maybe say a little something and somebody else something. That pretty soon we're, we're pretending that nothing ever happened. It's never addressed, never dealt with. We never get to the root of it and solve it and see how we can do better next time. We just pretend. So you may pretend that it's over, but often it's not over when you express your anger in an adverse way. You may frighten people that you didn't even know were frightened. Because you may be big and strong. A lot of people are smaller and weaker. And they know you have the physical ability to kill, should you so choose. So don't think it's over just because it's over in your head. It may not be over in the children. It may not be over in your spouse. What is the remedy for problems resulting from anger? Well, in this 12th verse that I just read in Numbers 20, Moses is faulted for not believing the Lord and for not sanctifying the Lord. So the first thing from this passage is that we need to believe the Lord. We've been discussing the danger of anger. 
the consequences of anger, the results that come from it, sins that result from it, giving place to the devil. I'm afraid that many of us tell ourselves, anger's just not that big a deal. Everybody loses his temper. Are you going to tell yourself that, or are you going to believe the Lord? I need to take this seriously. We all do. I need to realize that all of these warnings that God has given me are real, and they're important. They're for my best good. They're for the best good of the people around me. So I just need to, first of all, believe the Lord on the subject of anger, and secondly, to sanctify the Lord, meaning to set him apart as holy. To sanctify the Lord means to have the true view of the one true and living God. It means to revere God, to fear him, like we have in 1 Peter 3.15, very well-known passage. Sanctify the Lord God in your heart. In other words, view God as exalted. Have the right place for God in your heart. And then, in the context of 1 Peter 3.15, you can better answer people's questions about your hope. With regard to our present discussion, the idea of sanctifying God in your mind is this. If you have sanctified God in yourself, you're not going to lose your temper and sin because you don't want to do anything that's going to reflect negatively on God or his church. Not if you view him correctly and as you should every day. It behooves us all to remember that even the best of men can be overtaken by the sin of losing his temper. And the reason for this is that there are some sins that are very deceptive in their nature. The love of money, for example, is one of these. The influence of evil companions is another one of these. 1 Corinthians 15, 33. Why does Paul say, be not deceived, evil company corrupts good habits? I think it's because we can be so easily deceived by evil company. If these are our friends, these are our family, it's so easy to think, well, that's not going to happen to me. I'm not going to let it influence me. And then it does. This issue of anger is like that. It's extremely deceptive. Just as it's a temptation to think that covetousness won't get me, that family won't get me, it's a temptation to believe that anger won't get get me. But I have to be on my guard against this. Here's Moses, one of the finest men who ever lived. Numbers 12, verse 3 says that he was meek, he was humble, more than all the men on the face of the earth. It would have been difficult to find a better man than Moses, and yet we have an occasion here where he let his anger get the best of him. Anger so flared up that the meekest man on earth was not allowed to enter the promised land. Think of that. And this isn't the only time. (laughs) Back in Exodus 32, when Moses was coming down from the mountain and saw the golden calf and saw the people dancing, verse 19 said that Moses' anger waxed hot. And he threw down the tables of stone and broke them at the foot of the mountain. Somebody said he's the only man in history to break all Ten Commandments at once. That'd be hard to do in any way other than this, wouldn't it? The meekest man, in a moment of rage, physically broke what God just gave him. And here in Numbers, the meekest man on earth strikes the rock twice with his rod and misses the promised land. The lesson is, if that can happen to Moses, it can surely happen to me. And that's why I need to be on guard. 
if we're going to talk about remedies with regard to anger, one of the things we need to say is, when you become angry, don't stew. I don't know a better way to put it than that. Don't stew in your anger. Psalm 37 verse 8 says, Cease from anger and forsake wrath. Do not fret, it only causes harm. So what I'm saying is, don't feed your anger. Don't dwell on how wrong they did you and let it grow inside of you. Inside, we get to make the decisions and we need to make them right. And aside from the spiritual considerations here, stewing is not even physically good for you. Do you know that angry, cynical people tend to die at a younger age than people who are not? Men who score high for hostility on standard tests are four times more likely to die prematurely than men who score low. There is a time just to let it go. Not everything's going to be fair. Not everything's going to be right in this world. But you can decide, I'm just going to release it. I'm just going to let it go. It's just not worth it. So that's one thing we can do. Just let it go. Also, to overcome issues related to anger, we can work every day on developing a patient spirit. Proverbs 15, 18 said, A hot-tempered man stirs up strife, but he who is slow to anger allays contention. I quoted that from another translation a while ago. But I like the different translations in the book of Proverbs because I help. I think they help bring out different aspects. Ecclesiastes 7, verse 9 says, Do not hasten your spirit to be angry, for anger rests in the bosom of fools. And the longer I live, the more I'm sure that's right. Anger rests in the bosom of fools. So this is a retraining program, and you can start at any age. It's good to start young while you're more malleable, but you can start at any age. When you start getting angry, tell yourself to remain in control. My father was an only child, so he didn't have siblings growing up to knock off the rough edges. And when I was young, my father had a temper that he sometimes lost. I've seen him slam doors. I've seen him say things to my mother that I know he later wished he hadn't said. Good man. One of the finest men I ever knew. But he had an anger problem. And he decided at some point to take himself in hand and make a change. And I saw him make that change through the help of God's Holy Spirit. It was a gradual change that took place over time, but it was visually noticeable. His approach to his anger so modified his behavior and his intentions that on his last day in the hospital, laying in that bed, I never saw a more patient man. Here was a man who had truly let patience have her perfect work that he might be perfect and entire, lacking nothing. And he did it because he knew it was the right thing to do. And he relied on the enabling help of God's Holy Spirit to get him through that. I saw that, and that's how I know that this is possible. It's a retraining program. Also, guard your words. 
This is just so critically important. Guard your words. Swallow them, choke them down, do whatever you have to do before you say an angry word. A surefire way to lose your temper is to get into a war of words with somebody. He says something provocative. I respond the same way. It escalates. We're each going to one-up the other, and it gets out of hand. But Proverbs 15.1 says, A soft answer turns away wrath. And you've had that experience, haven't you? Where you gave a soft answer, and it really did turn away wrath. I've had that experience with many people in the world who are just so hot under the collar. You give a soft answer. You give a, reconcil- a reconciling approach and attitude. And pretty soon they're apologizing because they understood that they were out of control. A soft answer turneth away wrath, but grievous or harsh words stir up anger. It's important to take to heart James 1, 19 and 20. Be swift to hear, slow to speak, slow to wrath. There is a specific context for that in the first chapter of James, but it's pretty good just to apply that to life in general. Swift to hear, slow to speak, slow to wrath. It's simple to know, much harder to practice. We may possibly return to that passage a little later. Another thing that helps us in our approach to anger is to, as they say, don't sweat the small stuff. You can decide whether it's all small stuff or not. I don't really think it's all small stuff, but most of it is. Most of it is small stuff when we really examine it and how much it's going to impact anything. Many times, the things about which we get really angry turn out to be quite insignificant. Why do I get so mad about traffic jams? I ask myself that time and again. But I know I can change my attitude about it because I do have some experience in that. If somebody cuts me off in traffic, my attitude can be, be my guest. And I think it was Tad yesterday that said... uh, He may just be in a bigger hurry than you are. That's true. So make way for him. Treat him the way you'd want to be treated. If you were in a hurry, you'd want to be let by. We can do this. I don't need to be mad about traffic jams, at least nine times out of ten. I just came from California, so I'm thinking about traffic jams. In the great scheme of things, ordinarily it's going to make no difference at all. But I hear about this all the time. One man cuts off another man in traffic, and then that man gets angry and makes an obscene gesture, and this angers the first man, and he pulls out a gun with a laser sight and points the laser dot at the other man and ends up in jail. It's just ridiculous. And it's so unnecessary. And yet, we continue to do it. It's so completely contrary to the demeanor of our Lord. So how much better to just say, be my guest, be my guest. Proverbs 19.11 says, good sense makes one slow to anger, and it is his glory to overlook an offense. And I just realized I've stolen a minute and a half from you. You can have your full 30-minute break, sorry, and we'll come back at 10.31.30. That's my plan anyway. Thanks.